0: What can the international community do about Syria? The violence there continues, but there's still no UN resolution. The government rebuffs claims the defence cuts would prevent another Libya-style operation.
1: We do still retain contingent capability which we were able to deploy for the successful conclusion of Operation Elemy.
0: And why women are joining the Afghan National Army. Another attempt to get a UN resolution condemning the violence in Syria has failed. The daily slaughter of civilians continues and an emboldened President Assad refuses to stand down. Russia's diplomacy this week has so far amounted to nothing. And the US, as reported now, as saying there's only a small window before the situation is at a point of no return. So what does that mean? Civil war, military intervention, or can a peaceful solution advocated by the likes of the UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon still work? Well, joining me down the line is the former British ambassador to Syria, Sir Andrew Green, and in the studio is BFBS's defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Sir Andrew, can diplomacy still work?
2: Well, let me say, first of all, there is no military solution uh, and there is no place for military action. Uh, So diplomacy has to work. Uh, And uh, I think in terms of international diplomacy, it will not work. The uh, UN Security Council has come to a juddering halt uh, with the joint veto by Russia and China. Uh, I think the only scope for uh, diplomacy is to seek to generate a negotiation between the regime in Damascus and the opposition. This is something that the Russians have proposed, and the Americans, in my view, very foolishly, have uh, refused.
0: How valuable do you think Russia can still be in spite of it vetoing the UN resolution in terms of diplomacy?
2: Well, it can be valuable because it has real leverage in Syria. Uh, The Syrian regime can continue for some considerable time. They have support from the Soviet Union, sorry from Russia now, uh, from Iran, and of course some elements in Lebanon. Uh, So they do actually have some leverage over the regime, which I think we probably no longer have.
0: Ban Ki-moon is proposing a joint UN-Arab League peace envoy, Turkey calling for a conference. Um, You're saying that the only solution is some kind of negotiations between the two sides. Uh, do, Do you really think that is a viable option?
2: Well, it's not a strong option, but then all the other options are weaker. Uh, We are, in my view, on a slide towards civil war. Uh, The situation in Syria today is absolutely terrible. Uh, The only thing that is worse, or would be worse, would be a civil war, and that is the direction in which uh, events are going, and in my view we are accelerating that.
0: Why are we accelerating it?
2: Because we are, in effect, encouraging the uh, opposition to move towards the use of weapons. Uh, that is what I think is a subtext of what is what is going on with this uh, friends of free Syria and so on. Um, and I think that is, uh, frankly, foolishness.
0: Uh, Christopher Lee, um, foolish to arm the rebels. There are various reports on the options available to international community from humanitarian aid, a humanitarian corridor, even military action. How likely are any of these?
3: You could have military action, but it would be an absolute horlicks, to Mm. put it crudely. Exactly. Um, And that is, we have to remember that. If you start arming... And I suspect there are certain types of systems, small, small arms weapons, actually going into the Free Army. That's quite dangerous. It's dangerous because that is not going to do the Syrians, the so-called civilian opposition, is not going to do them any good at, at all at the moment. If you look, for example, what's going on in Homs today, there's been shelling there for six days, non-stop, almost. First thing that tells me is that the Syrians have got an inexhaustible supply of shells. Mm-hmm. Um, and that becomes important. If you look at where they've deployed their tanks on, on four levers, this shows that it's a big deployment and not simply a question of responding to the civilian population. You then start to look at, for example, the position of Iran and the fact that the Iranians are probably, probably uh, have some influence. Inside as well as outside of, of Syria, put that lot together, and add, of course, you know, it's not like Libya; it's a totally different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and even what's happening in Homs isn't the Benghazi, but it's, you know, for, for the loose term, it could be. There is absolutely nothing that the so-called Western powers, the people that are interested, can do about this, and that is the it's apparently the tragedy. The Israelis, in the meantime, say. What's going on, especially with the Iranian uh, uh, intervention there, that gives them more hope that it's possible to do something militarily uh, uh, to to resolve this. It is nonsense. It would not work militarily. So
0: it wouldn't work militarily, you say. Uh, Andrew Green, if there were to be some kind of military intervention, what could go wrong exactly?
2: (laughs) Gosh. Well, I'm really glad to hear what Christopher Lee is saying, because I totally agree with him. What could go wrong? My goodness. I mean... What on earth do we think we're trying to achieve? Uh, There's talk of a no-fly zone. You cannot have a no-fly zone unless you first suppress the air defence. The Syrians have very substantial air defence, originally intended, uh, Russian-supplied, of course, originally intended uh, for use against uh, the the, uh, Israelis. Um, That would be a huge operation in itself. You would be triggering a war, and that would in turn uh, lead to uh, inter nissan Conflict within Syria. We've seen this in Lebanon a generation ago, which was absolutely ghastly. We've seen it in Iraq more recently, where one group simply murders another group. I mean, if we think we're going down that road, we really must stop and think, think it through.
0: Uh, Christopher, um, you've seen all the hand wringing about the situation we find ourselves in at the moment. It, how likely do you think it is that British forces? as we stand today, could be involved at all in any shape or form in I think Syria. The
3: rom- I think the Romantics would love to think of the Even SAS, in a humanitarian the SBS, form. whatever. You're not going to get any humanitarian uh, or objective movements there until you get a vast agreement that there should be some sort of safe havens or, or ceasefire. That's not happening. If you look again at Homs, what is happening there, What are the targets? You don't just go for the buildings. You go for the hospitals, you go for the fire services that can't put out the the complication, etc. That is the size of the problem. We have to look at this in the greater global reality, the realpolitik. We don't have, whether we're the United States or NATO, whatever, we do not have the answers every time around. Mm -hmm. And this is a perfect example of something which we may have actually allowed to happen and now I can't fix it.
0: Sandra so yeah, Green, yeah, uh, yeah you, you, you're I very much in agreement. Agree. Uh, I absolutely agree. If you, if you were Bashar al-Assad, um, he, he, he must be well aware of the risk of being put up in front of the International Criminal Court. It he to give any ground, should he capitulate? Are there any options left for him other than tough it out?
2: No, probably not. I think uh, there's too much focus anyway on Bashar al-Assad. He has never run Syria. Uh, he is, um, has some limited influence. He's the front man for the Alawites, as we all know. And uh, even if he were to step aside, whatever that may mean, that you still have this Alawite group who uh, control the intelligence services, who form the key units of the, of the, of the army, uh, and who command the major units in the Air Force. Uh, that man stepping aside uh, will make no significant difference um, the options for this regime are to tough it out or to tough it out, and they will tough it out. And the only way that we can ease this is to get some kind of negotiation that will bring some of the conflict to an end and perhaps move to a very, very gradual reform. That's a reality, and we are at the very limits of what the West can usefully
0: do. Sir Andrew Green, former British ambassador to Syria, thank you very much. Sit with Keisha Still to come, we'll hear from Dr Rhonda Cornham, one of the first women to serve on the front line with the U.S. Army and now at the forefront of teaching emotional resilience to serving soldiers. And we'll hear about the training of the newest recruits to the Afghan National Army, women. British forces would struggle to mount a mission like last year's successful operation in Libya, according to the Commons Defence Select Committee. The MPs have warned the government that military spending cuts threaten the ability to intervene on such a scale in future. Our reporter Geoff Mead is here. Hello, Geoff. The Libya operation started just as the SDSR was starting to come into effect, didn't it? That's
4: right. Those decisions had been taken in the October. Libya got underway in the March 2011. And... uh, that's the issue, really, that it, the the cutbacks had already started to bite. Um, several of the warships, uh, HMS Liverpool comes to mind, um, were already due to be paid off and, and were, were um, diverted to the Mediterranean. The Nimrod, um, we had one Nimrod uh, available. It, that was extended, its life has extended, um, to allow it to operate um, uh, over Libya. So the cuts were already coming into force but the committee's point is they hadn't really bitten yet. Now they have and we would be in a very different environment were we to try a similar operation today.
0: So what sort of operation do the MPs think we could muster up now?
4: Well, th- it's not their job to detail in, 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 in precise uh, parameters what the military could be capable of and, and one of the difficulties they have is that there's been no transparency about what our capability currently is and they say that what is for sure is that Britain would face significantly greater challenges. And one of the things that has significantly shifted is could we, for much longer, continue to rely on American support, which was very much present in LME, for things like drones, mid-air refuelling, intelligence assets. The Americans, we know, are focusing much more on the Pacific, so we'd have to find other allies or try and do this alone.
0: So do they think we could manage more than one operation at once?
4: Uh, Again... It's, that's a question they're asking rather than answering, and they're saying that they need to know from the MOD, from the government, um, what uh, they're calling for an urgent review on how Britain responds to what are called these concurrent threats, more than one danger coming at the same time, uh, and they've asked for more transparency. Um, James Arbuthnot, who chairs the committee, uh, asked for profound changes. Let's hear him. The strains are always showing, <clears throat> and we are concerned that,
3: particularly in the area of contingencies in unexpected areas of threat. We won't be able to do several things at the same time.
0: So, um, Jeff, what's been the government's reaction to this report?
4: Well, I spoke within a few few hours uh, to the Defence Secretary. I, I have to say I found what he said slightly uh, ingenuous because he was saying that the success in Libya, which everybody agrees and everybody hails the uh, efforts of the, of the armed forces in that, showed that Britain was still capable of mounting that kind of operation. That was but, then. Exactly. And the committee uh, is making precisely the point that that was then. Could we do it again? Big question marks. Um, but he maintained that we still have a posture which allows Britain to fight, uh, at at the same time, one medium campaign and two small-scale. But he did accept that SDSR brought risks. Let's hear what he had to say.
1: We uh, think that the operation showed quite clearly that in addition to our main effort in Afghanistan and the other standing commitments that we have around the world, we do still retain contingent capability, uh, which we were able to deploy for the successful conclusion of Operation Ellamy.
0: Christopher, what do you make of this report? Well,
3: having sat through a lot of the evidence that went into that report, it is obvious that we're getting a repeat of what we've heard over the past it, 18 months. It, do, it does indeed yeah. it sound it, familiar, doesn't it, really? Yeah. We have to remember also um, that the, the posture, the military posture of, of, of the government and of the MOD has been this. You fight. You have to be capable of fighting one major conflict – plus a minor one. And that has always been, so you can have Iraq plus one, uh, Sierra Leone or whatever it is, and uh, Afghanistan plus Libya, you can just about do it.
0: I mean, I mean, should we be concerned that we couldn't do another Libya in the way that we did it when we did?
3: Not really. I mean, you have to, you have to be realistic. Uh, uh, you actually have to say to government, what do you want forces to do? What is your defence policy? What is your foreign policy? And it's the foreign policy that's important. And maybe you've got, to, you've got to change your ideas of what you want to be able to do, not to say, oh, well, we can't do that anymore. It's rather like saying, well, we couldn't do the Falklands again. It's a different thing 30 years on. Or we can't do Libya again. Do we want to do Libya again? And the truth is even bigger that you can't do major operations anymore without the Americans. And at the moment, the Americans are rethinking. Maybe they don't want to go either. So why would you want to go?
0: Well, another report has been published today. This one by the National Audit Office, and it says the Ministry of Defence may be cutting jobs too fast. The government spending watchdog says the rush to reduce headcount could lead to the loss of vital skills. And um, Jeff, it sounds like this one underlines some of the points made by the Defence Committee. What does it say exactly? I
4: think the, the, what links the two is it's a question of think today about the consequences tomorrow of what you're, of the action that you're taking, um, and what the uh, National Audit Office is saying. Is it, it, it applauds and understands the need for the MOD to save money, but it's rushing headlong into this uh, imperative, Cut today, of think cutting, cutting the payroll, losing skills. So, although the imperative is there to save money, uh, the MOD is not actually thinking about what is the organisation, what structure is the organisation that it's seeking to staff in the future.
0: Which jobs are the report authors most concerned about? Um,
4: Singled out are the ones which are obviously most attractive to employers in the private sector. Um, Think of the nuclear submarines and the Royal Navy uh, engineers and specialists who operate on those. Nuclear power stations would be very keen to get those men and women. Finance managers, perversely. I mean, you might think uh, uh, to have on your CV uh, having been a finance manager at the MOD would not be uh, a guarantee of uh, fast-tracked into a new job. But, you know, there will be skills there um, that private industry wants. And, again, the worrying point is, according to the National Audit Office, that these people will go... And then five years or more hence, uh, the MOD will simply find that they need to recruit them expensively as consultants.
0: And yet yet the MOD is in a difficult position here, isn't it? Because it's under pressure to make savings very quickly. They have to cut jobs quickly, don't they? Because if they don't do so, it'll cost more money if they waited.
4: Yeah, but they're not handling it well either. Uh, I mean, the the report, you're quite right, does identify there was a pause between tranche 1 and tranche 2 in the military redundancy programme that they estimate cost the MOD £100 million by by, uh, delaying that. But the, the issue is really that the MOD uh, and the report identifies that simply don't know who they've got. They've got, and the quote is, limited information on their civilian skills. So they really need to get a grip on this, find out who they've got, who they need, and who they can let go in order to make this huge savings of that £38 billion black hole.
0: All right, Jeff Mead, thank you very much. Downing Street has rejected claims by Argentina that Britain is engaged in a military build-up in the Falklands. The Argentine president, Cristina Fernández de Kirchner, says she'll complain to the United Nations that Britain has increased its military presence in the South Atlantic. Suki Cameron is the Falkland Islands government representative in London and joins us now. Good to speak to you, Susie. It seems that almost every week the Argentine president says something about the Falkland Islands. Is it a worry?
5: It's not a worry, it's just an annoyance really because it's been going on for so long and um, you know our wish is to have normal neighbourly relations with Argentina but their current stance just makes that completely impossible.
0: What's the Falkland Islands government doing in response?
5: Well, we're trying to get the message of what's happening in the islands and our right to self-determination, the development that's been going on in the last 30 years, just trying to get that across to people because I still think there is a lot of ignorance about the situation in the islands and the fact that we are a people, you know, self-governing, we're um, self-sufficient and, you know, we are a people's and we have our rights to be in the islands. What are the Falkland Islanders
0: themselves telling you about their concerns at this time?
5: Well, it has been certainly since the beginning of this year. I think the pressure has been on because uh, whilst it doesn't always get the headlines in the UK, it is really a daily um, drip-drip feed, if you like, of of messages coming out of Argentina. And, you know, we're trying to develop the islands. We're trying to develop fisheries and tourism um, and just trying to make the economy, um, you know, successful so that we can build on the work that's been done over the last 30 years but it's just annoying that argentina are always trying to put something in our way however having said that we're resourceful people and we work around it you talk about wanting to
0: develop the islands of course the potential for huge oil reserves is there if they are found and with that 30th anniversary coming up do you think argentina is using all that very aware that the Falklands may become very rich very soon
5: um, oil, develop, oil exploration is, is going on. It will be a long time yet before we know exactly what's there. I think Argentina are really just using this as another excuse. Um, and, um, you know, we will just see what happens, but it's, it's a long way away yet.
0: You've been talking about um, it all being very annoying. Is, is that as far as it goes? It's just an irritation?
5: It is, but uh, some of the actions that Argentina are taking to economically harm the islands are now having an effect. Uh, the price, how cost much of living it? is going on, going up, and uh, this is, you know, making people sort of feel quite angry because, you know, everything we try and do, they try and block. So fisheries, shipping, all these things, uh, charter flights for tourism, Argentina are trying to, as I say, economically harm the islands. Uh, Christopher, Cristina de
0: Fernandez de Kirchner doesn't want to let this go, does she? No, yeah, she's an
3: Argentinian politician. I and mean, Therefore, no Argentinian politician would ever let this go. It's something like, I mean, if you're a Spaniard, you're always talking about give us back the rock. Uh, in Ireland, they used to talk about give us back the six counties. The important thing is talking around in the bazaars of the, uh, of the diplomatic bazaars of the, uh, of the Brazilians, the Uruguayans, and to some extent the Chileans. What they're telling me is this. If she takes this to the United Nations, she'll get support. She will? She will get support. But and only a
0: small amount of support, I, I presume. Only she could
3: get quite a lot of support. What she won't get support is on the Security Council. And so that doesn't matter. But the impact at home, the impact in South America and the world impact, will be such as, yeah, it'll be worthwhile doing, and politically it'll be worthwhile doing. But there's quite a lobby within the General Assembly and the General Council of the United Nations will make statements enough to say that they, they ought to enter into negotiations, they being Argentina and the United Kingdom. There is no way that's going to happen at the moment. And it's very clear, British government policy is simple. As long as the Falkland Islanders want to remain British, that's exactly what's going to happen. So... Let's not get it too excited about it, but at the same time, we're going to see this go to the United Nations. There is a committee of the United Nations which is sitting, waiting for this report from her, uh, even now, and that'll go to the United Nations in about three weeks' time.
0: Very briefly, Susie Cameron, uh, how you, t- you tell us about this is the kind of thing we're hearing all the time—the rhetoric and, uh, from Argentina. Uh, how are the Falkland Islanders reacting to the fact that it is very public at the moment? It's in the media every day, as far as the UK is concerned.
5: Um, it's it is difficult because. Um You know, we don't want sort of temperatures to be raised necessarily. Having said that, it is a good opportunity to get our messages out and show people what the situation on the islands really is.
0: All right. Suki Cameron, thank you very much for joining us.
4: Thank you. This is BFBS SIGREP.
0: US flight surgeon Rhonda Cornham was one of the first generation of women to serve on the front line in the first Gulf War. Captured and tortured by the Iraqi Army, it was her ability to withstand these experiences which convinced her of the importance of teaching resilience to today's serving soldiers. Just less than a week after retiring as Assistant US Surgeon General, Dr. Cornham has been speaking about the emotional fitness programme the US Army has rolled out army-wide. As part of a rescue mission in 1991, she told our reporter, Rosie Layden, she was certain she was going to die.
6: When I was getting shot down and, and I could see us crashing, my feelings were not of horror. My feelings were of, well, at least I'm dying doing something honorable. You make the decision about whether what you're doing is worth it long before you actually are in that step. So, so when I joined the Army and I'd been in the Army and i internalized the Army values, um, and one of them is, never leave a fallen comrade. So I was simply acting what my, va- I was just living my values by going out on this kind of mission. But in terms of after that happened, um, I just, I look at every problem as a, as a challenge um, to be overcome. So, for example, when I had broke, both my arms are broken, so I couldn't, um, you know, I couldn't pick up anything, I couldn't, um, so I just. First of all, I was just really grateful and my fingers kept moving because I was really afraid that um, what had really happened was they were severed, and when they took my flight suit off, my arms were going to fall out of my sleeves. And, and
5: just so people can understand, um, not only did you have these you know, terrible injuries and, and a horrible experience of, of having your helicopter shot down, you, weren't, you were then in enemy country.
6: I was, I was then captured, but you have to understand that, that of our eight-man crew, five people were killed in that wreck. And so it wasn't like it was a choice of, of you're of your going to crash and then you're either going to go home or not or stay in Iraq. It's if you're going to crash, your only two choices are I'm going to be a prisoner of war I'm going to be dead. That makes being a prisoner of war look a lot more attractive.
5: The title of, of the lecture is Can Resilience Training Be, be Taught yes. and the Benefits of That. Um, this, this was your outlook, it was a of your training of, of your personal makeup. Uh, you have now um, been part of a program trying to, to teach resilience. Does it work?
6: We have good evidence that it works. Now, I will not tell you that we're going to make every person who is exposed to it um, able to deal with everything in their lives. But almost everybody will be able um, to be more resilient. It's kind of like physical training. You know, I, I, can, I can offer physical training to everybody. Some people will get really strong and really fast, and some people won't. But everybody can get stronger and
5: faster. Following your experiences in the first Gulf War, um, there was a lot of debate around the issue of women serving on the front line, and that's now over 20 years ago. Um, are you, you, you did not think that um, being captured was an argument against having women on the front line. Are, are you um, pleased to see progress being made in that area and hopefully that kind of, of debate shifting?
6: I think that debate has pretty much gone away, actually, um, because it, it certainly was true uh, before my experience that that one of the reasons trotted out to prevent women from um, being involved in combat was, you, well, they might get captured, and uh, and I think when it did happen, and I came back, and I did certainly know less well than than some of the men, and um, and better than many um, over the years. Um, you know that that really that argument really has not held any water. That was Dr.
0: Rhonda Cornham speaking to our reporter Rosie Layden. Well, as we heard just then, the debate about women on the front line appears to be well and truly over in the United States, although it's still ongoing here in the UK. Meanwhile, at the other end of the spectrum, over in Afghanistan, the Afghan National Army have started to recruit women to serve as officers. More than 300 have already signed up, and they're currently being trained at Camp Alamo in Kabul. Our reporter James Banks joins us now from our studio in Camp Bastion. Hello, James. Why is there this drive to recruit women into the ANA.
1: Well, hello, Kate. Uh, yes, in, in recent years, there's been a focus on increasing the numbers in the ANA, but also to reflect the full spectrum of Afghan society. Uh, it's, it's a very ethnic, diverse population here in Afghanistan, with many Tajiks and Uzbeks in the north of the country, while in the south down here in Helmand, it's mainly Pashtuns. The, the problem is being overcome with the new regional training centres. So, for example, Pashtun recruits from Helmand are now trained in Helmand and that's where they'll serve. But of course half the population are women and with the increase in female education and women now represented in government positions, it's important that jobs in the army and police force uh, are open up, up to women as well.
0: And James, you've been to see some of their training. What sort of things have the women been doing?
1: Yes, well, I have. The the women enrol on a 20-week course. Um, They spend the first 10 weeks learning military skills, such as how to use a rifle and and counterinsurgency, although they don't actually learn how to close and kill with the enemy. In fact, they only spend about one week on the ranges. Um, Then the next 10 weeks are of trade training, so either in things like human resources, communications or finance, alongside computer lessons, English lessons, daily PT and, of course, drill.
0: So it it doesn't sound like they're going to be involved in direct combat roles. What roles are they likely to take up?
1: Well, at the moment, they are very restricted in the jobs they can do. Uh, Four female officers have been recruited into the Afghan Air Force as helicopter pilots, but this isn't really the norm. Uh, But for the time being, most of the women go into desk jobs or work at the Ministry of Defence in Kabul. It's hoped, though, that as their numbers increase, male soldiers will get used to having women amongst the ranks and they will open up more jobs for them across the Afghan army. In fact, we spoke to one female lieutenant who said that she hopes one day to become a general, uh, general within the army, so these women certainly aren't short of ambition.
0: As is well known, James, under the Taliban, Afghan women were very much oppressed. Uh, this move to recruit them into the army must be significant. How difficult, though, is it for female soldiers to be accepted by the men?
1: Well, I think it's, it's a big step change for male ANA soldiers to accept. Um, currently, there are, around, well, there are around 348 female ANA, more than two-thirds of which are, are officers. But that's a tiny minority in an army which is all, pr- approaching 200,000 strong. And Afghanistan is a, a deeply male-dominated society.
0: What sort of women are signing up and, and do their families seem to approve?
1: Well it seems mostly to be educated women who are coming forward to join the army because they have a strong desire to work uh, and to have some independence from the men and they want to learn new skills and, and earn their own money. Many of the women haven't told their families in case they'll, they disapprove although one recruit told us that it was her family in fact who encouraged her to join up. One of the current batch that we met um, goes home every night because she has to go and look after her children but in the main the women say they just want to serve their country and prevent the Taliban returning to power.
0: All right, James Banks and Cambasian, thank you very much for that. Uh, Christopher, a huge step forward for women in Afghanistan, isn't it?
3: Um, yes, it is. It's a cultural step forward more than anything else, and that's, and that's particularly important. Um, but we've got to remember, um, it's not that unusual for this sort of thing to happen. Um, it, it, a lot of people would say that Um, You see, for example, in in Tunisia what's been going on there when women have actually got to get back to the position they were before. And this is an emphasis where any countries in dispute, any countries in disruption... It's the position of the women that can actually sort things out. But they're not going forward, you know, with a, uh, with a personal weapon and taking on the Taliban. They are going to be doing uh, desk jobs.
0: And briefly, going back to Dr. Cornham's comments, do you think we could see women serve on the front line in terms of a combat role in the British Army anytime soon?
3: What about the Army? But we already do it in, in the Navy. But in the
0: combat role.
3: Yeah, in the Navy, the combat role. I mean, in Liverpool, just come back from, from, from Libya, uh, what was there, 25 women on board? Uh, there are women commanding uh, the Royal Navy ships. Royal Navy's always been ahead of the game. <laughs> you had to
0: get one in for the Royal Navy, didn't you, Christopher? They thank don't you. need me. <laughs> that's, that's true. Christopher, thank you very much. That's all the time we have for uh, this week. Thanks to our guests and, of course, Christopher. If you'd like to join the discussion on any of the stories we've talked about today, you can follow us on Twitter at representative We're back at the same time next week. For the moment, though, thanks for listening. And from me, Kate Chabot, bye-bye for now.